The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 26th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll talk about the likely and unlikely heroes of this World Series, which the LA Dodgers are leading three games to two over the Tampa Bay Rays. ESPN's Myron Medcalf will also join us to discuss the financial challenges of college sports during a pandemic and how one Division I school is considering dropping sports entirely. And for our final segment, we're going to have a hang up and listen game show. Stay tuned as our panelists interrogate our mystery guest and try to guess who he is and why he's here. And you, the listeners, can play along at home or not. It's really up to you. I am the author of The Queen, host of Slow Burn Season 4, resident of Washington, D.C., and for one week only, the presenter of What's My Line. Also in Washington, D.C., it's the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, playing to win this brand new catamaran, Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. You know how much I love Sports Challenge. I do. And catamarans. Are you Dick Enberg? I'm just a lonely catamaran salesman trying to get this catamaran off my lot. <laughs> With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, the host of Slow Burn Season 3, playing to weigh this totally different brand new catamaran. It's Joel Anderson. Welcome, Joel. What in the hell am I going to do with a catamaran? <laughs> You're by the ocean. You're right there. Come on. Yeah. You're just crawling in catamarans out there. A catamaran is a boat, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Just like, okay. Yeah. Some sort of a boat. Sailboat. No, okay. Sailboat. I don't know how to swim. I don't want to be on the water. I don't want to be near the water. All right, fine. You can donate your catamaran. I think Stanford has a varsity sailing team, or at least did, until they cut a bunch of sports. I think they did. No longer. Yeah, it might have been one of the victims. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. There was a moment after Game 4 of the World Series on Saturday night when that Tampa Bay Ray, whose name you probably had never heard before, or if you had, didn't remember it because it's Brett Phillips and not, say, something more beautiful like Randy Rosarina or Manny Margot, also actual names of other previously unknown Tampa Bay Rays. Anyway, there was a moment after Brett Phillips had airplaned in the outfield and was dogpiled by his teammates when the camera cut to him sitting in the dugout, bent at the waist, being attended to by someone not in a uniform, maybe the team trainer. Phillips hadn't done the first interview with Fox. That was another guy you might not have heard of, Kevin Kiermeyer. So when I saw the shot of Phillips in the dugout, I was genuinely worried about Brett Phillips. Celebration injury, heart attack, nervous breakdown, any would have been understandable, but fortunately... 
were not the case. Brett Phillips was, I'm guessing, just overwhelmed and needed some quiet time before going back on the field and giving one of the purest post-game interviews ever to my pal Ken Rosenthal of Fox. Finally, did you see all the craziness with Randy scoring? <laughs> you know, I, I, honestly, it's hard to believe right now that things are going like that just happened. Once I saw Randy slip, I was like, oh, shoot, at least we tied it up. And then he missed the ball. I don't know what happened, but then he scored. The next thing I know, I'm airplaning around the outfield, and I get dogpiled, and here I am talking to the boys. Here I am talking to the boys. The Rays lost Game 5 on Sunday night. Game 6 is Tuesday. We'll get to that. But, Josh, we have to start with Brett Phillips and one of the most joyful moments that you'll ever see in a sports game. It was really, it was really lovely, wasn't it? Yeah, he's just uh, barely over 200. He was brought to the Rays in a trade with the Royals just as depth and to be a pinch runner. He's known for being fast, and he came into the game as a pinch runner. And I was thinking about this. like The reason that baseball has, I think, a number of postseason heroes, like unknown postseason heroes that seems out of proportion with other sports, I think is because... You know, there are deep rosters, but there are, there are deeper rosters in football. But I think it's because baseball, out of the major sports that we have here in this continent, it's the only one that has substitutions that are both unlimited, like unlike soccer, where you can only get three per game. Like in baseball, you can sub in and out anybody that you want, but they're also permanent. Like in basketball, you can make as many substitutions as you want, but the person you sub out can come back in the game. And same in hockey. But in baseball, you know, you start your best guys, your, you know, sub, your, you know, the second string is on the bench. But then often at the end of the game, especially if it's a long game, um, goes to extra innings, or if it's, you know, there's a lot of scoring as there was in this one, the lineup that ends up on the field bears little resemblance to the one that started out. And you often have to sub out the better players in exchange for, you know, in this case, Brett Phillips came out in a pinch runner and just happened to have to come up to bat. And so I think it's a neat thing about baseball where, you know, the lesser known guys get opportunities in the most consequential parts of games. Whereas, you know, Joel, I was trying to think about this with the NBA playoffs. The only example I could think of was like, Talon Horton Tucker, like, had scored five points in the second quarter of hmm. game four against the Rockets. Oh, in the, wow. like, Western Conference semis in the, you know, in the, in the second quarter. It's like, you know, at the end of the game, it's going to be like, LeBron and Anthony Davis taking every shot or, you know. Uh, Maybe it, Duncan Robinson is sort of a decent analog. But he's a as starter. A he started. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, but he's like a D3 player. And, you know, I mean, I, I get it, but I'm just, yes, you're right. I mean, just, it, you it get it. You're just trying like to that. undermine me. I understand. Yeah, I understand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you had been casually watching the NBA this year, you would know who Duncan Robinson friend, was, right? right? Fair and point. You would right. have heard the story about this kid that started at Williams College and made it to the NBA. Whereas, even if you were an attentive baseball fan, you probably didn't know who Brett Phillips was. And that is exactly right, Josh. It's sort of like the beauty of the unheralded hero, the player who comes up with an opportunity to do something crazy. And in this case, everything that happened was crazy. It wasn't like he just hit a single and the winning run scored. It was like the comedy of errors that allowed yeah. the game-winning run to score. Yeah, and that's actually, you call it the comedy of errors. That's the thing that sort of gets me about the Dodgers, man, because that could, 
I mean, for all of the like celebration and the hoopla that went over how it ended for the Rays, that could have just been a crippling moment for the Dodgers to like blow it like that. I mean, have two errors like that in a key moment. And given their recent postseason history. Yeah, you would just have to think if you're a Dodgers player or a Dodgers fan, like, oh, we are cursed. Like, we are actually not going to ever be able to close the door on this. So to see them bounce back in game five like that, to me, spoke a lot about like, you know, I, I guess whatever the, the foundation of that team is. And, you know, it had, it leads back to Clayton Kershaw. I guess the thing is that there's not actually a thing such as momentum in baseball. The momentum only yeah, lasts as long like as the mo- next... Momentum is the next day's starting pitcher. Starter, right. And then the luck that is involved or the, for- the good fortune that the Dodgers have to have Clayton Kershaw, you know, one of the best pitchers of this generation, up next. Like, it could have been set up to have been a nightmare and... and what actually happened is that, oh, the Dodgers just righted themselves the next night. Right. But, and what's what's important to point out is that it could have also been a nightmare because of how Clayton Kershaw has been perceived as a postseason pitcher. The narrative around Kershaw, even though he was 3-1 and one going into Sunday night's game in this postseason and had pitched really well, the narrative over the course of his career has been that He's been meh, 500 pitcher, high ERA. Like It's not the narrative, Stefan. It's, it's like the reality, the, the, right? The truth well, of what the, tr- the like His ERA are. going into this postseason was above five in the postseason over his career versus two point something over the course of his regular seasons. Well, before we get on to Kershaw, and I, I would like to, I want to listen to Joe Buck's call of the Brett Phillips single to win game four and the insanity that ensued. Jansen, that is into center field. Here comes Kiermaier. Phillips has tied the game. A Rose Arena coming around. Throw home. Now he stumbles. But the ball gets away. Tampa Bay wins it. Brett Phillips, game four hero. So as a, as a lot of people have pointed out correctly, that was a really good call by Joe Buck. He you know, was presented a fairly substantial challenge. Uh, it was a raid before him on the field and described everything accurately and with uh, emotion. So maybe we're having a, a, a slight Joe buck here, some uh, appreciation for his uh, work in the booth, which he doesn't usually get. But the thing that I wanted to point out about the play is that too often, in my view, in baseball these days, the highlight, which really isn't much of a highlight, and Sam Miller wrote a piece about this, um, is a home run. It's like not interesting to like either watch, um, except for like the second in which the ball contacts the bat. It's not really that interesting to call, although announcers have their distinctive home run calls and they put a lot of English on it. Um, but the thing that was so fun about this play, and you can hear it in that call, is that so much shit happened. It goes on right. for like 20 seconds. <laughs> and that's the great thing about baseball. It's like seeing Ken Griffey Jr. go from first to home. And is he, you know, the tension of like, you know, the ball going to the outfield and the relay. And is he gonna slide and front? Ugh. And there were and and that's a thing. Bad memory for me. But that's a thing that makes baseball and makes the playoffs, uh, baseball playoffs so fun and good is to have these like more attenuated moments rather than the game be decided by just like the crack of a bat and then it's over. Well, can I, I will say to extend that thought out that, you know, the thing that I like about international soccer or world cup is that every moment is so fraught, like every goal, you know, it's like life or death essentially. Right. That's what postseason baseball recaptures for me in a way that like regular season, because obviously the stakes are just not the same, but in the postseason. Everything that happens 
has so much weight riding on it, right? There's so it, like every moment is so fraught. And so when it comes down to that sort of situation, like that's the sort of stuff that makes people fall in love with the game. And like, that's the stuff that keeps bringing people back. And that's right. why postseason baseball, I mean, it has a level of drama that not even the NBA or the NFL can sort of recreate because of the dynamics of the game. Right. right. And I don't think you could, you could construct a series of events and a setup like that one on Saturday night. I mean, this, this dominant closer who's had some issues throwing 98, Against Kenley Jansen. Kenley Jansen against the last guy on the bench who by happenstance is inserted into the game. He's like batting only because there was nobody left to bat. They had one player left on the bench and it was the backup catcher. And then it's a little flare single into center field. The first fielder flubs the ball, makes a throw in to the cutoff man who turns and throws it to the catcher offline. So that's number two. Number three is the catcher isn't even aware that Arosa Arena has turned third after the flub in the outfield and is coming to home. So he's anticipating he's got to make a play. So he sweeps, makes a sweep tag before the ball gets there. The ball ricochets away. Arosa Arena thinks he's going to get thrown out. So he stumbles and falls and then recovers and slaps home. I mean, it was one of those The joy and and the beauty of it was that it was so unexpected, but also the combination of factors that led to that moment. There was a story in the Wall Street Journal by Jarrett Diamond about Brett Phillips' wife going to the game, but leaving before the ending so she didn't see his at-bat in person. And it's like kind of a fun and cute human interest story. Or it's actually kind of like a sad, (laughs) not grounds for divorce, but just like a sad (laughs) testament to our times. Like, she has not been with him for the last several months because of, you know, the players having to quarantine during the playoffs. And she could have had the opportunity, but she, like, has a job in Florida and she, like, didn't want to ask for time off from the job. So then she goes to the stadium and it's the first time she's seen him in person in, like, more than a month. And they're only able to, like, say hi at a distance from the outfield. And so... You know, it's like, again, on the one hand, it's like, oh, like, what a what a fun haha thing. Like she like left left the game early. On the other hand, it's like, you know, this is baseball being played in a pandemic and they have fans at this stadium in Arlington, Texas. And it's like really good games and, and well-matched teams. And it's also like actually being played at a time when the World Series is traditionally being played. And so there's a lot about this World Series that seems like kind of strangely normal. And it took that actually to remind me of what the larger context is here. Well, yeah, I mean, you say it's, it's normal, but I mean, again, I hadn't even thought about the pandemic piece of this until you just said it like that, because I'm thinking, oh man, how awesome would it have been to have the Game 4 ending and Tampa, you know what I mean? Like, it, and to have it before its fans, you know, mm-hmm. one of the few times that you could fill out Tropicana Field, right? And to be sort of denied that moment to see a stadium explode and, you know, a town sort of rally and celebrate a team like that. That piece of it was missing. Like, I know that it was cool to, like, have the camera follow, you know, Brett Phillips running around in the outfield and, and the guys dogpile him and everything. But, you know, I still think that, like, Missing the fans is a piece of this that is just something you just can't recreate. Like, no matter how many cardboard cutouts you put in the outfield stands or whatever, and you know, you you know, smart camera work, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it still can't replace the feeling of having, you know, a full stadium in postseason baseball. Like, that's a big part of this part of the year for me. 
Yeah, I think that's totally true. But I also feel like that might be the first moment since sports resumed that you could actually drop into a like highlight reel of like greatest moments in sports. And you actually wouldn't know that it was happening right. during a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, you had mentioned that these have been two evenly matched teams and the games have all been pretty good. And that was the case on Sunday night in game five too. final score was four to two. There were no lead changes in this game. There were no lead changes actually in games one, two or three either. So until that crazy game four, things proceeded without too many surprises. But the one thing about Game 5 that sort of followed the theme of the ending of Game 4 and what you mentioned, Josh, is that there was stuff that we love to see that we don't get to see that much in baseball anymore. There was a triple, there was a bunt single, and there was an attempted steal of home by Manny Margot. And when that happened, I was like, my gasped, like when I saw him take off, like he's stealing home, holy shit. And that was another sort of fun moment that made me love baseball for what it is, and particularly the World Series. Yeah, and there was also, you know, and I'd like to circle back to Clayton Kershaw, like this guy, you know, in the very like kind of classic sports way, like trying to transcend what he'd done in the past and and do something, you know, elevate his team and elevate himself in a moment where it mattered. And he... And he pulled it off. And like Louisa Thomas had a good piece about this in The New Yorker Mm -hmm. about even as a neutral fan, the kind of stress of watching him pitch in the World Series, knowing the weight of all of it. So you can only imagine what it was like for him or for a Dodgers fan. But um, a thing that I hadn't realized when I read this, this piece on the website Beyond the Box Score is that, you know, I knew that Kershaw wasn't the same pitcher that he had been in terms of velocity, that he was getting by with a little bit more finesse that... Um, his fastball speed had declined. But he actually went to one of these facilities, and Ben Lindbergh wrote, writes about this a lot in his book, The MVP Machine, these places that players go now in the offseason to do like kind of development and learn new pitches, learn new skills. So he went to this place called Driveline, and he actually added miles per hour to his fastball. Not that much, like 1.2 miles per hour. And so it's not, I don't think there's anything like particularly suspicious about it, but you know, it's rare for a guy to throw a little faster and, you know, an age 32 season than he had in his age 31 season. And so that's the thing that I think is cool is that with Kershaw, he's a guy who's going to be in the hall of fame, somebody who's made a crap load of money. He's one of the, maybe the best pitcher of his generation. And rather than just like going back and doing it over again and hoping that he gets different results, he's actually just like trying to get better and trying to like actively do things to allow himself to be more successful in the postseason rather than just hoping it would happen. Yeah. And even, even in that moment with the steal of a home or the attempted steal of home, you saw how athletes prepare and why Kershaw um, was able to register that out. I mean, he, he said after the game that, you know, he was pitching, he's got this really elaborate windup. He raises his glove pretty high, which gives runners an opportunity to get a big jump. And you watch the replay and Kershaw goes into that high glove raise and Max Muncie, the first baseman, starts pointing at the runner taken off from third and Kershaw steps off the rubber and deliberately quickly gets the ball home and they get him by like a millimeter. And he said after the game, that's something that we practice because of the way that he throws the ball. So I thought that was really, really cool and very fun to watch from both ends, both the balls that it took for Margot to take off and try to steal home because they were aware of Kershaw's delivery, but then Kershaw's response and the catcher's play at home too. It was a great play. 
Yeah, I mean, to Luisa's piece, too, about this, just sort of the anxiety you have watching Clayton Kershaw and the Dodgers sort of go through this. I mean, I'm not the sort of person that's going to be rooting for the Dodgers. I mean, I'm tired of them whining about the 2017 World Series or whatever, but... I mean, they also just have this enormous payroll, and to, like, think mm-hmm. of them as, like, a underdog, like, team that we all need to rally around so they can finally win is a bit risible. Right, although I do, like, I do like the idea that they pay, right? That they're not doing this, yeah. you know, sort of, you know trying to win around the edges and not pay, not pay and true, not true. put out the best you know product on the field right so i think they should be rewarded for that but i've been just trying to think about with clayton kershaw how many great no doubt hall of famers that you have this sort of anxiety around them in in these sort of moments and i couldn't come up with many like maybe like peyton manning you know when they play in a big game or whatever and you still like as great as they are you still just don't necessarily trust them right and like maybe shack like i'm just thinking like when shack when they would send him to the free throw line at games, like when he was at his peak, and there was still like this hole in his game, and you could exploit it, and you could see the like just the tension that, that you know that rose on his own team, the people that there wasn't necessarily this belief, and so to that extent, I'm sort of happy to see the Dodgers get over this because I think that excellence should be rewarded in sports, and because baseball's postseason is an imperfect measure of you know excellence, and it's not necessarily the best sample size. It's good to see, you know, excellence be rewarded, even though, I, you know, I, I do have like some personal affinity for the Rays. But yeah, it's if this ends with the Dodgers winning the World Series, great, because they'll shut they'll shut the hell up about 2017. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a good team will be rewarded. And like, that's all you can ask for as a sports fan. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's hard to pretend UC Riverside, the large university about an hour east of Los Angeles, has ever made much of an impact on the college sports national landscape. The school disbanded its football team in 1975. The men's basketball team hasn't advanced to the NCAA tournament in 23 years. In fact, only two sports programs have advanced to the NCAAs in the past decade, men's soccer in 2018 and women's indoor track and field in 2016. But UC Riverside seems poised to become a national symbol of the catastrophic financial costs of the coronavirus pandemic. Our guest for this segment, ESPN's Myra Medcalf, and my dog, wrote last week about the challenges facing the school, where they're considering eliminating all 15 sports for a cost savings of $23.2 million. UC Riverside is currently the most subsidized Division I program in the country, with more than 90% of annual revenue coming from student fees. That's just one reason school officials have targeted the athletic department for elimination. So, Myron, you wrote, quote, that the chancellor is expected to make a final decision sometime before the end of the calendar year, but possibly as early as next month. So if you had to guess, what do you think is going to happen there? That's a really good question. You know, I I think what I can say is cutting the entire athletic department is a real thing. You know, I mean, this isn't like just something they kind of threw out there as a possibility among a hundred different options. So I think it's a real thing. And you consider the subsidy and you consider the financial challenges that every school is having, but especially the schools that don't have like the major power five football pipeline, everyone's got to make some tough choices. So 
my hope is that they find a way to keep going. And I talked to a lot of people who said, hey, student fees have not increased on that campus in almost 20 years. And there seems to be some support for that to, to raise student fees to maybe make up for that gap. But we're also in a pandemic. So, so I don't know that anybody can make any assumptions about new revenue streams. So I guess I would say it feels realistic to me that they may announce that they are ending sports at UCR. I mean, that feels like a real possibility. So Myron, when you say that you wish that they figure out a way to save sports here, why do you feel that way? Like, do you feel like if they decided to drop down from D1, make these like club sports or what would the harm there be? Yeah, I I think that's a fair question. When I say I hope they get a chance to keep going, I just feel, uh, you know, a, a certain sympathy and really empathy for the athlete. I'm a former college athlete, played at a D2 school. You know, I, I know what it's like to play a sort of an under radar program and, and the possible impact that can have on your life. So I, I do feel for them. And then you you talk to people. I mean, it's a lot of jobs you, you're talking about potentially eliminating and impacting. So, yeah, I think in that regard, I do hope they hope they find a way in terms of dropping a level. That's a conversation they have to have. And that's a conversation not just UCR has to have. I think every school in this country that doesn't have a multi-million dollar TV contract or football program that's just pouring in revenue year after year has to really think about what they want to be going forward. Like, can you keep up with the Joneses? Because I think a lot of schools are going to realize that they just can't. And I played D2 football, right? Not that long. I wasn't as good as Joe, right? But I was, I was good enough to be like a dude out of Milwaukee to get a D2 partial scholarship and track scholarship. So I understand what it's like to not be D1 and sort of the, you know, the perception attached to that. And, but like, who cares? You know, at the end of the day, you still have opportunities for student athletes. You're still playing the sport. And I think that has to be something that schools like UCR and others consider going forward. Right. Cause that's the, it's really shifting the thinking of what sports in college as opposed to college sports need to be. I mean, it makes a lot of sense for schools that aren't big five that don't generate any revenue. Cause let's be clear. You see uh, Riverside doesn't generate revenue from sports. Um, when the school talks about it's $23 million in revenue for the athletic department that comes out of student fees and the university's overall budget. There's no money coming in here. So the idea to me is that you got to move away from this ingrained notion that losing intercollegiate sports at a NCAA level would somehow be devastating. You know, we shouldn't be perpetuating the idea that college would be less of an experience for all due respect, Myron, second-tier athletes for whom sports might have been time-consuming but won't be central to the rest of their lives. And that's not to say we should take away the opportunities to go to college for athletes to get partial or full scholarships. Universities are fully within their rights and abilities to admit the exact same students and have them play sports but have them play at a different level, whether it's D3 or club. Yeah, I mean, conceptually, that makes a lot of sense. But the tangible impact of that is a little different. I mean, you're going to have to untangle a lot of things. Like At I the mean, end of the day, sure. if we were going to have a conversation about what the Division I landscape looked like, we should have done it 40 years ago, you know? Like when Larry Bird and Magic Johnson played against each other in the NCAA tournament for the national championship, and, and like the sports were taken off the collegiate level and TV contracts were emerging, mm-hmm. that was the opportunity to say, okay, we're going to set aside the wealthier schools and let them do their own thing. 
And then we're going to put everybody else in sort of this different category. What, what changed all that really is the NCAA tournament. And if you are a school in the Big West like UCR, you're still going to benefit financially from that. You know, so there is some financial payout being attached to a Division One institution. And you've also invested in facilities and all of these other things to make yourself a, a Division One school. So I can understand how programs in UCR's position are going to do everything in their power to hold on to that D1 affiliation. But I do agree that like whether you want to do it or whether you're forced to do it, I think collegiate sports are going to change dramatically here in the coming years just because financially it's not sustainable for, for a number of programs. And for me, I've always thought that like power five should split entirely, do their own thing in every sport. And you could eliminate a lot of these challenges uh, if you didn't have sort of this keeping up with the Joneses attitude. But a, a lot of schools are just unwilling to do that because they appreciate, you know, the, the front porch theory, they call it, right? Like if we're D1, there's this impact on the university. That's just not true for every school. Like having D1 sports doesn't sell your school for every institution, for some, certainly, but not all. But I just think there's a lot of things that you're going to have to unravel to go from we're a small-time D1 school to, all right, let's just go D3. Uh, and I think most schools are going to try to hold on to D1 as long as possible. And I think that's what UCR is doing. What, what's that saying? We're throwing good money after bad, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. I read another story you wrote about Hawaii, right? That's another Big West program. And I didn't even, I guess because we haven't even gotten to that point in the season yet where we had to start thinking about all these other smaller schools starting to, mm -hmm. to play sports. But like the logistical challenges that remain for all these other schools that are broke as hell, like trying to play, like, can you just talk about that real briefly? Because I mean, it isn't, I don't even understand how the University of Hawaii is going to pull off a basketball season like this. Yeah, I'll go a step further, Joe. I don't know how anybody's going to pull off a college basketball season. I think college basketball is set up to have far more complications than football. You're moving to indoor arenas. And in football, you can say the SEC is going to play the SEC. A bunch of big budget schools, the same standards for testing. They have the money to pay for. They're playing each other. Basketball is everybody plays everybody in November and December. At least that's the goal. And that's sort of the economy. The small schools count on the bigger schools to get those buy games. And I just don't think a lot of schools can afford what the NCAA wants, which is testing three times a week uh, throughout the season. I just talked to a, a, an athletic director of a non-Power 5 school who said he's already spent $400,000 on testing. And that was $400,000 that they had never planned for in their budget. So you add that on top of the pandemic and layoffs and furloughs. You can have a whole lot of schools that just have to make, I think, some tough decisions. The Hawaii story. So my sister lives in Hawaii. She lives in Maui. So oh. I knew like, yeah, what was going on the entire time because she was like, yeah, you can't just come to Hawaii. Like you got to quarantine 14 days. Right. And now it's the standard of to come to the islands. You got to test negative beforehand. So like schools are like, OK, I got to get that test before I leave. How does that work? Schools on the island coming to the mainland are like. You know, what are the logistics of that? So I just think college basketball has a lot of problems with testing protocols, standards. And um, I just think you have a whole lot of complications in a weird season. So I think I need to take over at this point because Joel's going to be scheming about how to get an invite to Hawaii for, <laughs> for the next uh, 10 minutes. But um, I think I could actually, I don't know if I believe it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to work it out. But I think I could mount an argument that UCR is actually a great example of a school that should have D1 sports. Like, Myron, you you paint a portrait of the school where it's a majority-minority campus, 
83% of the students received some form of aid. You know, we're talking in the abstract about, oh, they could just have club sports and, you know, but in that case, given the world that we live in, would a lot of the athletes who are getting an opportunity to go to the school and get an education have the same opportunity? And also, if we're just talking about this as a strict, like, budget line item situation, is that an acknowledgement that the universe, this university or other universities don't see athletics as having any kind of a- academic purpose or educational purpose. Like you don't, we don't hear um, about the budget numbers and the revenues and losses for other departments at a university. And maybe that's fair. Maybe, maybe we should all just be clear eyed and say that athletics don't serve any kind of educational or academic purpose at the, yeah. these institutions. But it doesn't seem like that's the argument that the schools are making. Yeah, it feels like it goes by the school. Like you have some leaders, like some presidents who are all about athletics all day, every day. You have other schools who are like, it ain't all that. So I think like they're comparable problems, right? The power fives, and even a school like UCR. Like Ohio State doesn't need the subsidy, but they also have a bunch of donors who subsidize that program too, right? Yeah. And they have a bunch of people who come to that stadium every Saturday and they subsidize that program too. Mm-hmm. So like, it kind of depends on like how you view the word subsidy, right? At, at the end of the day, yeah, there's a product that you can sell to the general public in ways that you can at UCR. If I can jump in for a second, like the Ohio State thing, you could argue that the the moral issue there is the fact that a lot of the, or, you know, the revenue that's generated by pri- primarily black athletes in basketball and football gets redistributed to these, you know, other no revenue sports that are more, uh, you know, sailing that they're, they're more, they're more white <laughs> athletes on mm-hmm. the other sports. It's just, yeah, yeah redistributed so. from black, black students, black athletes to white ones. Whereas at UCR, it seems like actually the revenue is being distributed to the black athletes or, or yeah. athletes of color. But, it, so, but but the revenue is, you know, the revenue at Ohio State is revenue that they're generating off of the backs of the athletes who perform as entertainment that people want to watch. And therefore, they have the opportunity to make hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue annually. The difference at UCR is that the athletes are playing because they love playing and the university is giving them an opportunity to play. And Myron, I, I, I think that there's... There's got to be a middle ground here for schools like UCR, and I don't know if it's a Division III model or if it's a different model that says, we still want you to play, and we still want you to come to our campus and have the opportunity to play, but we're just not going to subsidize it at the same rate that we used to. Yeah, and again, if you're UCR, the argument there is you won't get the same caliber of athlete. And they enjoy being at the Division One level, you know, for some of the reasons that that I listed. And you could go D three, and, and you can recruit some some good athletes. But it is a different attraction. Like, right. so I'll speak from experience. My bias is, and I think everyone should always admit their bias in this journalism world because we all are biased to some degree. I was that kid, right? So I was the kid who didn't apply to college until May of my senior year because I was waiting on somebody to offer me a partial scholarship, right? That's how I was going to school. Mm-hmm. And I didn't grow up in poverty. I grew up in a middle class family. But like, that was my ticket. I was going to get a partial scholarship, play football at a Division II school, had about four or five different offers I was looking at. That was my ticket. And I turned that into the career I have now, mm-hmm. right? So I understand, like, what that can do, that collegiate experience, having access to that. And even me, I don't know if I would have been as motivated without football to go to college. You know, I come from educated parents, not all my brothers and sisters are going to college, but it wasn't for me, like, College for me was like, where can I go play ball? 
you know? Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of people who think like that. And it's not just black athletes. I think it's a lot of athletes in general. So I, I do think there is a, a financial element there, an attraction there, where someone's going to help you pay for school. Right. And you do lose that when you go down to the Division three model. But I think the pandemic has changed everything. Right. And, and, and I think UC Riverside doesn't operate in a vacuum. I mean, I, it's going to yes. be extremely hard for one school to make this step. It'll be not as hard for a group of schools to make this step, to still be able to say to students that we'll still give you scholarship, there'll still be an opportunity to play. The model is just going to be different. You're not going to travel around the country. We're going to, if, if, you, if you don't play football, you're going to play more games at one time. There's going to, it's just got to be, a, yeah. or you're going to play sm- shorter seasons. It's just got to be a different model. That's why I was thinking that, like, it seems like this is a, a sort of decision that should be made in concert with, like, other UC schools, right? Like, right. Irvine, you know, Santa Barbara, San Diego, whatever, like, so that they don't have to do this alone. And I can't imagine that UC Riverside is the only school in the UC system that is going through this, like, financial catastrophe, right? Like, I mean, they, yeah. certainly there are a lot of other schools bearing this sort of burden. And so, if like one school does it, like theoretically, they're having conversations with all these other schools within that system about what what the consequences of that might be. Yeah, I, th- I think UCR is first, but they're not last at all mm-hmm. because a lot of schools I think gonna find themselves in the same position where they're saying, "Can we afford to support this program financially going forward? Uh, can we s- afford everything attached to having sports on campus? Even if you go to a D three model, you're not offering scholarships. You're still gonna have staff." coaches, right. facilities, maintenance, and all these other elements that, that you have to, to pay. So I don't think a number of schools are going to find themselves in that spot. But it's a number of schools that probably should have thought about this years ago in terms of the benefits of jumping to Division One. But once you do it and you're affiliated with the Division One conference, it's just more difficult to, to untangle all of that. And I think UCR is trying to figure that out now. The people in the athletic department are saying, listen, we can raise student fees, we can fix this financial gap, and we can keep moving forward. You know, this is a this is a short-term solution that the school is is offering right now, but it's gonna hurt things down the line. Whereas the school, I think, is saying there's a lot of money we just don't have right now. They're expecting to lose $32 million from the state, and it could grow. That number could grow. So I think UCR has an argument, but I think the argument that the school is making is makes a lot of financial sense, unfortunately, in terms of what they can and can't support in the middle of a pandemic. Well, I mean, obviously we have a lot to look forward to coming up here. We'll find out soon enough uh, who's going to play basketball and who isn't and what's going to happen with UCR. And uh, hopefully we can have you back on, Myron. And I appreciate you uh, shouting out my athletic skills because it has happened once a week (laughs) per podcast. So when you went ahead and brought it up, I didn't have to do it myself. It's in Joel's contract. It's true. It's true. He was the fastest 10-year-old in the country. I was like the fastest dude in my neighborhood. So that's yeah, I mean, you know, depending on the neighborhood, that could be a big deal. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, just, I just had to beat Chris. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, shout out to Chris. Uh, thank you, Byron. We'll have you back, bro. Thanks, everybody. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the remarkable return of Big Ten football, all thanks to our president, Donald Trump. Please note that Donald Trump had nothing to do with the return of Big Ten football. Any suggestion otherwise is blatantly false. But yes, the return of Big Ten football, a dramatic tale that happens to include Penn State losing to Indiana. We'll discuss it, and to hear that discussion, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. And now, I would like to welcome you all to Hang Up and Win, America's favorite sports-themed game show. Joining us, as always, are our panelists, Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis. Thank you for being with us today, Joel. Oh, God. A catamaran is at stake here, Wolf, I understand. And Stefan, thank you. Great to be with you, Josh. And we're delighted to have our celebrity guest for this week. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you having me. All right. Now... Everybody's going to get to know Bruce, Joel, and Stefan. You can ask him any question that you like. Your goal is to figure out why he's joined us on the show today. The only hint I'll give you is that he is a sports innovator. And don't worry, if it seems like you guys need some help, I will help you out. But maybe you won't need any help. So who wants to get us started? You can ask anything you like. Anything? Okay. I mean, <laughs> who are you, Bruce? Not a second. <laughs> May you ask him what sport he played? Okay, we can ask what sport? Okay. Yeah. Bruce, what sport do you play? Uh, I play college football. Oh, okay. Uh-oh. I'm excited now. Bruce, you know that Joel played college football as well, so. Okay. Okay, Joel. Okay. Where are you, where are you originally from, Bruce? I'm originally from Arkansas. Oh, okay. What part of Arkansas? Originally from Little Rock. Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh, man. Okay. Bruce, huh. did, you, did you go to a major college and play football? I think it was a major college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could just ask him where he went. Where'd you go to? Where did you go to school? I went to the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. <gasps> oh, okay. Oh, man. Uh, what position did you play, Bruce? Play quarterback. Joel, explain oh. to the listeners if they don't, if they don't remember what's, what's your connection here. Well, I mean, I always like to say UAPB made me. My, my parents met there. My mother is from Pine Bluff. So, oh, man. Okay. Bruce, what did you attend uh, Arkansas Pine Bluff and play quarterback in the 1970s? I attended UAPB and played in the 90s. My father attended to play quarterback in the 70s. Hmm, okay. No illegal Googling, Stefan. I'm not Googling. Nobody's okay. Googling. Nobody's, Nobody's Googling. Googling. Nobody's Googling. <laughs> you said quarterback, right? Yes, sir. All right. So here's a here's a hint. So Bruce, when he was playing quarterback for UAPB in the 90s, I mentioned that He's a sports innovator. You know, what th- What his innovation was, you know, he made a suggestion that nobody had ever suggested before. And his team kind of employed a strategy upon, upon Bruce's suggestion. Did your team ever punt, Bruce? We did punt. We did punt, yes, sir. I like where your head's at, though, Stefan. Thank not, you. Not, not one of these teams that never punted. Did your team huddle, Bruce? Uh, we huddled, we huddled. Yes, we we huddled a little bit. We were we were no huddle, but we did employ the huddle uh, strategy. How do you think they're doing so far, Bruce? They they heading in the right direction. They're definitely <laughs> heading in the right direction. Oh man. Okay. Um. So here's another hint for you guys. I wanted to have Bruce come on the show because what his innovation was is really apropos to something that was in the news in football this weekend in, in college and in the NFL. Huh. In college and what, what happened this weekend? Hmm. Oh man, hold on. I th- 
Nobody got coronavirus, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they had, don't think they had coronavirus in the 90s. So. <laughs> no. Man, I'm trying to think what happened this weekend. Did Like the two-point conversion? Oh, was it the first two-point conversion? Did you go for two-point conversions every time? No, sir. Oh, okay. There was a two-point conversion in that game, though. Okay, okay. Oh, man. Um, I think I know your last name, though, now. <laughs> Do you want to give him a hint, Bruce? Uh, yeah. Hint is, strategy-wise, this has only been used at the end of games. Oh, that's a good hint. Oh, at the end of games. Maybe at the end of games, and a lot of people don't think that, or didn't think it was actually a strategy that should be used. My brain as a kicker says that you guys onside kicked all the time, but that's not the answer. No, that was... I would place that as a strategy also. that would It would be in the same category as an onside kick. Mm-hmm. All right. I got one more hint for you guys. And this is when I talked to Bruce yesterday, he told me that he came up with this strategy playing a college football video game on Sega Genesis. What? Whoa, man. Was it was it Bill Walsh college football? <laughs> it sure was. was it? It sure was. <laughs> I had that game. I had that game. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we uh, used to play it all the time in a uh, hunt hall, one of the dorms on campus. Oh my god! Okay, man. Hey, hey, let me get one more hint. And several of us became coaches, and we use it still to this day. Whew. man, I'm just running. I'm trying to run the gamut of every possible game this week. Bruce, uh, also tell tell Joel where you uh, where you live now. Uh, I'm now in Houston, Texas. Dog. I coach high school football Dog. in Houston, Texas. Madison Tech, Madison High School on Southwest Side. Yes, sir. Right off form. Um, yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Joel, Joel, you can understand why I was excited to have, yeah. uh, have Bruce well, on the show. I learned to drive over in Madison. That's why I took my, <laughs> yeah. my driving test was over there back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the new Madison now. It's, it, yeah. We have a new, new school. Hey, Bruce, does the innovation have to do with the quarterback position specifically? Well, no, the strategy has to do, uh, I'm putting it like the strategy has to do with uh, last minute game hero, heroics, last minute game heroics. All right. I'm going to give oh, you was guys. It, was it like a, oh, mm. say, oh, what was you, it, say what you're going to say, Joel. It's not, um, not, not like a hook and ladder. Like, did you run a hook and ladder every, I don't know. It's similar to that. You, you, you're warming up. Oh, man. All right, Stefan, you want one more guess, and then we'll have just we'll have Bruce tell the story. I'm thinking we got close. Oh, I know what it is. You didn't <laughs> score a touchdown. You took a knee at the one yard line oh. when you could have run in. <laughs> oh my god! All right, Bruce, tell him the story of what happened. <laughs> That's it in this in this game, 1994 NAIA playoff semifinals. We were actually playing Western Montana. In 1994, uh, semifinals of the NAIA playoffs. It was a shootout. The game was a shootout. I mean, I think it was 60 to 53 final score. However, Western Montana had the ball running the clock out. And it it was still enough time in the game where they had to actually run plays. So we were trying to figure out, you know, what we could do to get the ball back, you know, with opportunity to control the destiny you know, of, of winning the game or tying the game going overtime. So I think you you guys were down by one and they had the ball with like 90 seconds to you go. let them score. That's, I think that's what it was. And oh. uh, the coach called timeout 
uh, and came over to the sideline. The team, our team came over to the sideline. And uh, with me playing quarterback, I wasn't the starting quarterback at the time. I was a backup quarterback. But however, the head coach, who was Lee Hartman at the time, allowed the quarterbacks to have a say in, you know, in the offensive strategy, you know, because, you know, we, we used to meet with him all the time. And so when the team came over the sideline, I went over to the head coach and said, Coach, the only way we can get the ball back if we let him score. He looked at me and was like, <laughs> okay, okay, we're doing that. we do doing that. But, but anyway, you know, it came about because we used to play Bill Watts college football all the time in the dorm rooms. And my former teammate, Cedric Sherrod, who is now the head coach of Bastrop High School in Louisiana, you know, we used to always talk about, you know, the opportunity of being coaches because, you know, we knew what we wanted to be at that time. You know, we were all in school studying. I was studying kinesiology because I wanted to coach. He was doing the same thing. A couple other, you know, my teammates. But anyway, uh, we used to always come up with little strategies and talk football in the dorms. And one thing we used to do was if the game was on the line and, you know, the game was close, we always wanted the ball at the end to dictate, you know, whether we win or lose. So we used to let you score and get the ball back. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, this came up in the game. And uh, like I say, Coach Hartman uh, was was nice enough to listen to me. And we went out and let him score. But when they did it, that was the most amazing thing because as, you know, the play was developing, you could see the head coach on the sideline jumping up like, fall down, fall down. <laughs> and, but the guy was wide open, headed to the end zone. And uh, he scored. They kicked the field goal, went up by eight. And um, we went 93 yards. And we had a two-point play we had been working on all year long, so we knew it was going to work. We scored the touchdown, got the two-point conversion, and went on and win in overtime. Wow. And so, wow, Bruce, in my research, I couldn't find any other example of anybody allowing the other team to score on purpose before you came up with the idea. Is that what you've, what you've come to understand, that you were the first one to suggest this in a real non-video game-based football game? Well, I mean, uh, the thing about it is that, you know, I went to HBCU, and going to HBCU and being in a situation where a lot of things that we did on campus was innovative. You know, we didn't have a lot of resources, so we always had to think outside the box on, you know, how we could do this, how we could do that, uh, you know, how we could advance this and how we could advance that. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, me making this call was, you know, in line with some of the greats of, you know, HBCUs and the ideas that have stimulated from, you know, from that. But um, just looking back on it, we had never heard of it. And of course, you know, at the time you didn't have the worldwide way of social media. So, you know, if they did do it, it wouldn't be as, you know, broadcast as it is now. But it's definitely to see other coaches and programs employing, you know, our strategy <laughs> to help them. That's crazy. So I will give the floor over to you guys, Joel and Stefan, in a second. But before I do that, we've got a clip that we want to play. And you didn't have the World Wide Web back then, but you did have Sports Center with Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick. Let's oh. listen to a clip. Pine bluffing black. They trail Western Montana 46-45 with a buck 30 left, and they were just intercepted. 
So on the sidelines, Pine Bluff's third-string quarterback, Bruce Swinton Jr., tells his coach, let them score now or they'll just run out the clock whenever we'll they get, get the ball back. So they get out of the way of Western Montana's Paul Snow, Western Montana 53, Pine Bluff 45. Pine Bluff down by eight. They get the ball back. At least they've got a chance. So, Bruce, you're immortalized by Keith Olbermann on SportsCenter. That's cool. That's incredible, man. That must have been incredibly cool at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was cool. It, you know, at the time, everybody on campus enjoyed it. We were playing for our opportunity to uh, go to the national championship. We had just came off the death penalty in 93. It was our second year back from the death penalty. And, you know, it was, it was really an emotional time for the university and the program coming off the death penalty. The second year back, and we were playing for an uh, opportunity to win a national championship. It was really an enjoyable time for not only the football program, but the university in whole. I'm just floored. So, like, you said you wanted to get into coaching. So, like, after you graduated, did you get right into coaching then? And where did you go? I did. Um, it was amazing. My first coaching job was at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. I was a student assistant there, and Coach Harmon actually started my coaching career. I, uh, after my year there, I went and was a graduate assistant for Patrick Nix. It's no, uh, I mean, it's an amazing uh, time. I worked with maybe three or four college football's top coaches at a very young age. Me and Patrick Nix was the exact same age. He was the head coach of Henderson State, and I was the GA. I'll never, never forget interviewing with him. And that was one of the things that interested him about me, you know, working with him. We were the exact same age at the time. He got an opportunity to be a head coach, and he was giving me an opportunity to, you know, start my coaching career. On that staff, we had Charles Kelly, who is now at Alabama, used to be the uh, defensive coordinator at Georgia Tech, Florida State, and a, a couple of different places. Doug Meacham, who is the offensive coordinator at TCU now. Yeah. And, you know, of course, uh, Patrick Nix, he's a high school head coach in Alabama now. So, Bruce, 25 years in coaching, have you ever had the opportunity to let the other team score again? I've never had to employ that strategy, uh, but I have been blessed to make some other calls, you know, you know, game-winning calls. You know, we've, I've never had to use that strategy. <laughs> <laughs> but when you see it on TV, when, other, when it happens in other games, what do you think? I, I just smile. I just smile, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Like I said, I went to a small school, HBCU. You know, we don't get a lot of, you know, the publicity or the you know, recognition. So, you know, when I, when I see things like that happen, it's, you know, it's just another, you know, significant, to me, it's just another significant part that I feel like HBCUs play in the grand scheme of things. That's great. And yeah, we're glad to be able to give you uh, the publicity that you deserve. Yeah. You know, it, it seemed like a thing that you you guys had to your advantage in 1994 was the element of surprise. Like you mentioned that the other coach was telling him to kneel down, but it's not like at that time players were really used to the idea of the other team letting them score and the idea of kneeling. Whereas in the games this weekend that I mentioned, so Indiana, Penn State, and then Atlanta Falcons and Detroit Lions in the NFL. Both the, you know, the Penn State runner and then Todd Gurley for the Falcons, they both understood what that they should kneel, but they accidentally scored <laughs> touchdowns. They accidentally fell into the end zones, which allowed Indiana and Detroit to come back. But um, it must be it must be harder um, now, Bruce, 
to pull this off than it was for you guys in 1994. You definitely know that they understand there's a possibility that it could happen. But whenever you put a football in a, a player's hand, mm-hmm. and you know it's hard to tell him not to go score a touchdown. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the biggest treat in football yeah, is getting in that end zone. So you know it's hard for you to tell somebody not to go score. You know when it's there. I mean, it's 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 just difficult. I can only imagine you know what's going through a person's head that you know has the ball with an opportunity to score a touchdown. It's going to be hard for him not to get, you know, to go ahead and score. It would be for me. <laughs> Joel, Joel, did you ever have the opportunity to intentionally not score a touchdown? No, but I, I, I took every touchdown opportunity I had, though. I, 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 don't, know, I, don't, know, I don't know if I would have been turning one down. <laughs> yeah, the, run, the running back mentality or the quarterback mentality has got to be, what's well, on the defense? I'm scoring. Yeah. <laughs> right. Stop him right. on the other end. Yeah. You know, when you called me and reached out to me yesterday, you know, I, the vision, I started playing it again in my head. It's been 25 years, and uh, I can still see the guy with the ball and the coach running on the sideline trying to get <laughs> it to stop. But, you know, like you said at the time, the element of surprise, you know, they didn't, you know, people didn't think about it then. So, you know, the coach, it dawned on him as the play was actually taking taking place. And by that time, it was too late. Well, Bruce Wen Jr., it was such a delight to yeah. have you on and to give you credit. Josh, you really got us, man. You, I mean, this was right up the alley, bro. Bruce, this was so much fun. I appreciate you guys having me. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now it is time for After Balls. I'm still on a high from our game show. I think we're all winners. Stefan, Joel, no catamarans, we're all all winners. We cannot deny that you delivered on your promise that it was going to be fun. That's all I wanted to hear. So just some more details that we didn't get into in the segment. The quarterback, starting quarterback for UAPB during that game was uh, Chris Robinson. And we got to note that he threw for six touchdowns in that victory. Anthony Norris caught nine passes for 165 yards and four touchdowns. And yeah, it was a 60 to... 53 victory. I will not mention the UAPB lost in the NAIA finals to um, some school at Oklahoma. That's not important. But the thing that I thought was really cool about the story, and Joel and Stefan, I think you can both appreciate this, is that like you have this this backup quarterback goes up to the coach, Lee Hardman, is like, we should try this crazy thing nobody's ever tried before. He's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) like a lot of times you know you wrote about this in your book stefan i mean like coaches take all the fun out of the game for players they don't listen to players they tell you know even though they're not seeing what the players seeing on the field they think that they know best they don't allow the players to be creative um, and have any input and so when i asked bruce like were you surprised that lee hardman like took your advice he was like no because you know he always let us have input and i thought that was really cool and I think we should therefore honor Lee Hardman with the name of our afterballs this week. Josh, what's your Lee Hardman? My 
Lee Hardman is about uh, a good piece of journalism that I read last week. Kent Babb had a really good profile in the Washington Post. It was of Andrew Giuliani, the younger Giuliani, who is Rudy's son, got famous at age seven for acting up on stage during his dad's inauguration as mayor of New York, making faces and whatnot. It was cute. When he got older, he became estranged from his dad and began to spend a lot of time with his surrogate father, Donald Trump. What a great choice for for surrogate father. <laughs> um, they played a lot of golf together. They continue to play a lot of golf together. Um, and Andrew is now 34 years old. And on the government payroll, your tax dollars are paying him to be the White House's, quote, sports liaison, which seems to involve him doing lots of interviews with right-wing media, wherein he claims credit for himself and the administration vis-a-vis sports being played during the pandemic. In an interview with Newsmax, uh, as well as on Twitter, nothing ever good happens when when you start the sentence with in an interview with Newsmax. But But anyway... Andrew Giuliani said he played a role in Big Ten football coming back and that he was, quote, in the room for these discussions. But Kent Babb, doing uh, the Lord's work, reached out to Big Ten schools, 12 of the 14, yes, there are 14 schools in the Big Ten, told him they had no idea who Andrew Giuliani was. So I just wanted to read all of that (laughs) into the afterball record. Um, But there was something else that caught my attention in Babb's story. Giuliani played golf at Duke, at least for a while, The coach at the time kicked Giuliani off the team. Among his alleged infractions was having a timber tantrum and destroying his driver during a round, then replacing it during the round, which is against the rules, and lying about replacing it. He also allegedly injured a teammate by tackling him too hard during a football game. It makes him a little more likable. What? He also got in a fight with a teammate, which culminated in Giuliani throwing an apple at the dude's face. Rather than transfer and find a new team to play on after getting kicked off the team, Giuliani filed a lawsuit saying that the coach had conspired to secretly expel him. According to Golf Digest, Giuliani argued, quote, that his enrollment at Duke constituted a contract in which his payment of $200,000 in tuition and fees across four years brought him, among other things, lifetime access to the university's golf facilities. So after getting kicked off the team, he still wanted to be able to play golf at the facilities for life. The suit asks for that access, compensatory damages, exemplary damages, legal fees, and a ruling that student-athletes enjoy contractual rights. As Bab writes in his piece in The Post, Judge Wallace W. Dixon of the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of North Carolina recommended that the suit be dismissed, which it ultimately would be in 2010. Among the reasons that Dixon cited in his ruling, Giuliani was attempting to change arguments between the complaint and the brief which he likened to trying to change clubs after hitting the golf ball. The judge also wrote that the plaintiff's reliance on four student policy manuals as evidence of a contract is a swing and a miss, and that plaintiff attempts to take a mulligan with this argument. However, this shot also lands in the drink. Oh, he loves shutting this up, this dude down. Good lord! <laughs> you can call him a motherfucker, Joel. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. You, oh, you you saw me cut. You saw me uh, stifle that. <laughs> the uh, the uh, coup de grace here is that the judge said the Giuliani's complaint brought to mind uh, the movie Caddyshack, the character of uh, Carl Spackler, played by Bill Murray, in which Spackler assesses a long-range shot, as described in Courthouse News, um, thusly. He's on the final hole. He's about 455 yards away. He's going to hit about a two-iron, I think. So the judge was having a great time writing this ruling, mocking our young uh, 
plaintiff. And I think just as a general rule, I haven't done the full data analysis here, but when the judge quotes Caddyshack in discussing your um, your argument, you're probably not going to win the case. And so Andrew Giuliani, unsuccessful plaintiff, unsuccessful sports liaison, yeah. your tax dollars at work. Who knew that Duke would have a more unpopular athlete than Grayson Allen? I mean, <laughs> good Lord. <laughs> On that note... That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and happy birthday, Zelmo Beatty. Hey, happy birthday to my mom, too. Go ahead and throw that in there. Happy birthday, Joel's mom and Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening.